Paul has gotten some rather bad news. Members of Chloe's family, these are presumably people Paul had known from his time in Corinth, had come to Ephesus, where Paul was then staying. And they informed him of serious troubles back in Corinth. People were quarreling to the point that factions had developed in the church, and various groups were identifying themselves as followers of Paul, while others claimed to be loyal to Apollos or to Peter. Some even claimed to be merely followers of Jesus. No doubt, when Paul had been in Corinth a year or more previously, he taught them that Christians become members of the body of Christ, the church, through faith in Jesus and baptism. Now he gets word that the Corinthians were divided, with some claiming to be followers of those who had taught them, or even who had baptized them. Since Paul can't hop on a plane or get in his car and skedaddle to Corinth quickly, he must address the situation in writing. So, he addresses a letter we know as 1 Corinthians. In verse 10 of the first chapter of this letter, we find the thesis statement which sets the tone for all that follows. Paul appeals to the struggling Christians in Corinth to stop acting like the pagans they once were and to act like the Christians they now are. They've been called to be saints as believers in Jesus Christ, so they must end their schismatic behavior and get on the same page, united in mind and judgment, as Paul puts it. No more of this party spirit, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or even I follow Christ. Christ is not divided, and Paul was not crucified for the Corinthians. Paul implores that Corinthians remember that he came to preach the cross of Jesus Christ to them, not tickle their ears with clever words of pagan wisdom, which actually robs the cross of its power to save. Their quarreling and divisions betray the gospel which had brought them together in the first place, when Jesus called them out of pagan darkness into the light of his wonderful kingdom. The factions which were forming are contrary to their baptism, through which they had together become members of Christ's church and part of his body. The Corinthians must return to what Paul had taught them. The divisive behavior must cease, and the Corinthians must reunite around the gospel of a crucified Savior. In episode 4 of season 3 of the Blessed Hope podcast, we'll tackle verses 10 through 17 of the first chapter of Paul's Corinthian letter. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and I invite you to get out your Bibles, if you can, and join me for the next hour or so as we consider Paul's admonition to the Corinthians to put an end to these divisions and refocus upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So let us turn to our text for this episode, verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is nothing so gut-wrenching in a congregation as a church split. Some of us have been through them, and almost nothing good comes from them when they occur. Even in the case of a Scottish revival, which is the facetious term for the departure of a group of disaffected troublemakers who cause the very problems they're complaining about, division in the church is still division. Christ's spiritual body is being torn apart by sinful behavior. The basis for such division is always sin, and the consequence is that God's people suffer, and perhaps even worse, the church's witness to those outside is compromised. While church splits are probably the worst-case scenario, there is another subtle form of division which is also found in Christ's church and often within Reformed churches. This is the case of factions. Well, I follow the teaching of so-and-so, and my teacher said this about your teacher. And then comes the inevitable response, Oh yeah? Well, I follow the teachings of so-and-so, and he said that your teacher does such-and-such. Well, Paul takes things seriously, and once it had come to Paul's attention that several factions had formed in the Corinthian church, he regards this as such a serious matter that this is the very first issue he tackles in his letter to the Corinthians. And his caution to them should ring true today, especially in our age of tribalism. The divisions within the Corinthian church stand in sharp contrast to the ideals set forth in the previous verse, verse 9, where Paul wrote, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Sadly, the Corinthians are not characterized by their fellowship with each other in Christ, but by their current divisions, the schismata, within their ranks. A schism is the act of tearing apart, something we can assume was not yet final in Corinth, but was currently underway. Paul tells us that people were quarreling, they were not getting along, and that means speaking critically of each other, associating with those of like mind, a, again, a sort of tribalism and perhaps backstabbing each other, as we might expect in a place like Corinth, known for pride and personal accomplishment. In verse 10, Paul reminds them of the reality of their situation, divisions and factions. But there's no indication that these schisms were doctrinal in nature. Rather, they seem to be of a more petty and personal nature. What is clear is that when Paul left Corinth, the congregation was united around their common fellowship with the risen Savior. After being absent from them for a time, the Corinthians are divided into factions, which Paul describes as people identifying with their favorite teacher, Paul or Apollos or Peter. 
I follow dot 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 is a declaration of self-seeking independence. What is absent is we're in this together because Jesus Christ died for each of us and we are all together members of his body. As mentioned previously, although we might expect a stern rebuke of the Corinthians, Paul does not do so. Nor does he express great amazement as he did in his letter to the Galatians. Recall Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you. As their father in the faith, the apostle appeals to the members of this church in terms of a family unit, as a father might do with feuding children. Unity within the church family is grounded in their common baptism into Jesus Christ, which is the entrance into the community of believers, and in their weekly fellowship with the risen Lord and each other in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are intended to unite Christ's church, not divide it. And that's a subject Paul will address later on in this epistle. Paul speaks to his brothers using a family term of endearment, which should be understood to include all members of the church, men and women, family units, all are members of Christ's body. Paul uses the term brothers, Adelphoi, 39 times in this epistle. Paul knows many of these people personally. He knows their various situations and circumstances before they were called into fellowship with Christ Jesus through the gospel. As one commentator points out, his appeal, quote, reminds the readers that Paul's words are not merely his private opinion, but that Paul's exhortations formulate the consequences of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, end of quote. So Paul makes an affectionate appeal to them as a father would to his children. Since he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he could, if necessary, pull rank and challenge them with a full authority of his office, as he's going to do later on in 2 Corinthians 12 and 13, when the problems in Corinth haven't gone away. But he doesn't do that here. Paul's appeal to the members of this church is that all of you agree, literally, all of you speak the same thing which is a classical way of speaking of being united in mind or in the collective political judgment of a group. The problem is that various divisions, factions, or rivalries have formed within the church after Paul left Corinth, seriously undermining the church's unity. These divisions might stem from any number of things. They could be tied to the misuse of spiritual gifts, people using gifts as an occasion to brag, not to serve, or a more personal sort of thing, my apostle's better than your apostle, or the gulf between socioeconomic haves and have-nots. You know, the wealthy saying, who let the rabble in? We can't be certain about the specifics, but nevertheless, the divisions were present and were forming in the church, harming the body, its members, and compromising the church's witness. Paul will make this rebuke even sharper in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, when he asks, For you are still of the flesh? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You know, Paul in effect saying, Stop and consider your motives. I take the term Paul uses here, schismata, to be best understood in the sense of factions or even cliques, which had formed informally, but then once formed, identified with a favorite teacher, as we are going to see in verse 12. 
Instead of being divided along such superficial and trivial lines, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment, using a verb which means to restore something to its proper condition, a verb which is used in Matthew 4.21 in reference to repairing fishing nets. The Corinthians are to repair their fractured unity by restoring their thinking and focusing upon the person work of Jesus, not the personalities or the reputations of those teaching them. When speaking of judgment, Paul's probably referring to just the ability of, to determine right from wrong, something pretty simple. As we learn in verse 11, the reported division, schism within the church, has come to Paul from a household of a church member named Chloe. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The members of her family somehow got word to Paul of what was going on within the Corinthian congregation. We don't know whether Chloe or her people lived in Ephesus, Paul's location when he wrote this letter, or in Corinth, and there's much debate about her social status and her exact locale. But we do know that the people in her household circle had been in Corinth, and they were likely members of the Corinthian church, and they had seen what was going on and then reported it to Paul while he was staying in Ephesus about two years after he'd left Corinth. The temptation is great to fill in the blanks, especially in the absence of specifics, and when trying to establish why Paul wrote this letter. We'll do our best to avoid that temptation. In verse 12, Paul makes reference to the actual divisions and factions within the church. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. We don't know how and why these factions formed. And Chiampa and Rosner ask what I think is a salient question. What happened after Paul left Corinth? And then they answer, quoting, The paucity of clues in the text has led to an avalanche of speculative suggestions. End of quote. And they cite one writer who correctly laments, Unfortunately, the answers provided by scholars are often more determined by what he just brought to 1 Corinthians than by what he's learned from the letter. And I say amen to that. Especially when you read the literature and, and read the volumes of speculation about what was going on. What we can say is that Paul, Apollos, and Peter had been in Corinth, and that the solution may be as simple as each faction apparently was following their favorite teachers. And since there's no mention of any specific doctrine, the factions likely formed around subjective factors arising within each group, like any church any of you have ever been in. They may have preferred one teacher's style and personality over that of another, and this may be tied to social standing and to the widespread practice of the sophists of identifying with followers, their preferred teachers, and this was a form of status. I don't want to follow that guy that nobody likes. I'm going to follow the guy that everybody likes, that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, cliques had formed with individuals joining each clique based upon their own or their group's preference for the particular teacher. Now, it has to be stated that this is being done without the particular teacher's permission or their encouragement. And this cliquishness is like a fast-growing cancer, and it's a serious threat to the health of Christ's body. 
Since Paul has a long history with this congregation, the mention of his name should come as no surprise. One clique had formed claiming to be followers of Paul. Other cliques apparently were challenging Paul's authority. There is a clique devoted to Apollos, who may be the author of the book of Hebrews, and who is mentioned later by Paul as someone whom the apostle felt was important to send to Corinth in his own absence, 1 Corinthians 16.22. Luke describes Apollos as a learned Jew from Alexandria in Acts 18.24-28. And Paul speaks of how he planted, but Apollos had watered. He founded the church. Apollos came along as a later teacher or leader, 1 Corinthians 3.6. Whatever perceived differences existed between the teaching of Paul and Apollos remains unknown to us, although from Luke's account, it is easy to see why people would have identified with Apollos and his teaching. And from what we do know, Paul thought very highly of him. Surely, Paul would not have sent Apollos to Corinth if there were differences between them. The inclusion of Peter, Cephas being the Aramaic form in this list, is a bit more problematic. We have no knowledge apart from this passage that Peter was ever in the Corinthian church. But what is clear is that some of the Corinthians identified themselves as followers of Peter. We know that Peter was a follower of Jesus longer than Paul had been, that he was the leader of the Twelve, and according to Paul's account in Galatians, Peter was quite prone to caving into pressure from Jewish Christians associated with James. But the precise nature of Peter's distinctive influence in the Corinthian congregation remains a mystery. Now, it's certainly possible, from the reference to him in 1 Corinthians 9.5, as well as here, and in 1 Corinthians 3.22 and 15.5, that Peter had been in Corinth with his wife. That's interesting to think of the fact that the first pope traveled with his wife. Hmm. Another puzzling question has to do with Paul's statement, I follow Christ. And as you can gather, much ink has been spilled, offering a host of explanations. Is Paul saying, as an apostle, I am not a member of any such faction, I follow Christ? Or is Paul saying there was a faction within the church claiming, we follow no man, instead we follow Christ? The latter seems the most natural, and it fits best with the rhetorical question that begins the next verse. I think the best way to understand this is as follows. Some in the church were offended by the factionalism and reacting against it, and so they affirm, we follow no man, we follow no faction, we follow only Christ. But in effect, this forms another faction based on not following the other factions. And if true, this is another form of the boasting to which the Corinthians were prone. As an unintended consequence, it means that Christ had been reduced from the head of the church to simply the leader of another faction, which is the unintended consequence. Tom Schreiner challenges us to consider what is all too easily overlooked while we try and entangle the reasons behind the formation of these factions in Corinth. He writes, quoting, The divisions were entirely the fault of the Corinthians, and Paul did not find fault with the theology of Peter or with Apollos. In fact, Paul specifically says that Peter and he proclaimed the same gospel. And Schreiner continues, and so the divisions must be attributed not to contrary theologies, but to the pride of the Corinthians and their entrancement with the rhetorical ability of certain speakers. 
The very thought of such an outcome leads Paul to ask three rhetorical questions in verse 13, all of which expose the foolishness of such thinking. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, the first question, is Christ divided, gets at the logical consequence of what results from this division. As Christ is one, the church is one, so too his body must be one. Now, ironically, the body of Christ is being torn apart by those who claim to be followers of Christ, not men. And in terms of the second question, the very thought of Paul being the Savior serves as a reductio ad absurdum. It's false on its face, and no arguments even needed. It is the last of these rhetorical questions, where you baptized in the name of Paul, to which the answer is obviously no, which leads Paul to conclude in verses 14 to 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. According to John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, following the example of Jesus, it was apostolic practice to delegate baptism, which was done in the name of Christ, by the officers of the church. And that practice avoids the very problem Paul is dealing with here. I was baptized by so-and-so, hence I'm a follower of so-and-so. Paul is not diminishing the importance of baptism, but he is diminishing the importance of the one who actually performs the baptism. Paul says he baptized Crispus, who according to Acts 18.8 was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. He also baptized Gaius, two men who were likely the first converts in Corinth. Now, Gaius was a common name which appears throughout the New Testament. This particular Gaius is likely the man identified in Acts 18.7 by the surname Titius Eustus, who was a worshiper of Yahweh and who lived next door to the synagogue. As Bruce Winter points out, and I'm quoting, Much to the great ire of the Jewish community, Paul gathered the converts and met next door to the synagogue in the house of Titius Eustus, and here he's citing Acts 18.8. We can only imagine how difficult it might have been for the Jews in Corinth, the head of the synagogue leaving to follow Jesus, and the new church worshiping right next door. Winter notes that both of these men's names imply Roman citizenship, like that of Paul. These were Jews who were also Roman citizens. In light of the factions which had formed, Paul gives thanks to God that he did not baptize anyone else so that they were not able to boast about being baptized by an apostle who was also the founder of the Corinthian church. Paul says he baptized entire households, oikos in this case, the household of Stephanus, probably the same man who was one of the delegates who found Paul in Ephesus and was among the first converts in the province of Achaia, according to 1 Corinthians 16 verse 15. Paul's mention of household baptism here is important evidence that all the members of the family of a convert, such as Stephanus, were baptized upon the profession of the head of the house. 1 Corinthians 7.14, a passage we'll discuss when we get there. A first century household was a very important social unit. It included the home, that is the physical structure, the building, 
the land surrounding it, as well as all the inhabitants who were under the authority of the householder, including the immediate family, which presumably includes infants and small children, as well as slaves and household laborers, all regard as members of the family. Ben Witherington III notes, quoting, The baptizing of whole households, such as that of Stephanus, raises interesting questions. In 1617, Paul identifies this household as the first conference in Achaia, the region or province in Greece that included Corinth. Without debating what it meant to baptize households, the household table, and here Witherington appeals to Colossians 3, 18-4-1, there's a similar household table in Ephesians, may suggest that not only free adults, but also infants, children, and slaves were involved. Withington concludes, quoting, In Roman religion, it was the normal, though not universal, practice that the religion of the family was determined by the head of the household, and the other household members normally followed suit. End of quote. And that fits with Luke's report in Acts chapter 16 that Paul baptized the entire household of the Philippian jailer, which seems to extend baptism to all the members of the household, which was understood to be a much larger group than the typical contemporary Western nuclear family, which counts just parents and children. So the first century unit of a household is much bigger, and we presume it includes all the children and all the members of the family. And the question is, how far out does that list go? So it's a much different thing than the way we in the West look at the family unit. Paul is thankful that he did not baptize many of the Corinthians, which points in the direction that the factions in Corinth may have been tied in some way to the individuals who had baptized them. The Christ party, of course, is accepted. Now that may have led to the unfortunate situation in which the baptized individuals form an illegitimate connection to the person who baptized them. And that would explain why Paul is so thankful that he baptized so few of them so that people could not claim to be baptized into Paul's name. And Schreiner points out, quote, paying attention to the person who baptized them, they, the Corinthians, were missing out on the true import of baptism, end of quote. Baptism was the public act which incorporates new converts into the ecclesia, into the church, marking off who was in and who was not. The purpose of baptism is not to regenerate the baptized, nor does it presume the regeneration of the one being baptized, nor does it exclude children of believers. Again, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 7.14. What it does do is unite new Christians into a new household under one head who is Christ. Now, as for the meaning of baptism from the Reformed perspective, we can do no better than to quote John Calvin. Notice that the nature of baptism is like a bond of mutual contract, for as the Lord by that symbol receives us into his household and adds us to his people, so we put ourselves under the obligation of faithfulness to him and may never have any other spiritual Lord. Accordingly, as God on his part makes a covenant of grace with us, in which he promises remission of sins and a new life, so on our part there is an oath to wage spiritual warfare by which we promise allegiance to him forever. 
If that's the meaning of baptism, then nothing could be as destructive to this new household as the formation of factions and the divisions which result. And Paul will not allow that to go unchecked. Well, as we take a brief break, we've already covered a fair bit of ground with a whole lot more to come. Paul's thesis statement in verse 10 sets the stage for what follows in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul exposes the serious nature of claiming to be followers of those who taught and or baptized them. As members of the body of Christ, the Corinthians must not return to human wisdom to which they were once devoted. No more of this, I follow so-and-so, because that behavior robs the cross of its power and does great harm to the body of Christ. As always, show notes for this and all past episodes of the Blessed Up Podcast can be found at the Riddle blog. That's kimriddlebarger.com, lowercase all one word, kimriddlebarger.com. You can find years of sermons I preached at Christ Reformed Church, lots of essays dealing with eschatology, lots of biblical theology. For example, I'm currently working on a series in the book of Daniel. There are a series of commentaries on the Reformed Confessions. I am working my way through the Canons of Dort. You can also find ordering information in the show notes for my book on 1 Corinthians in the Lectio Continua series of expositional commentaries published by Reformation Heritage Press. So if you want to take a look at that, you can go to the show notes and find the link, and that'll take you to the information page on the Reformation Heritage Press uh, website. Now, if you find the Blessed Hope podcast to be of value, please tell those whom you think might be interested in our deep dive in the letters of Paul to Come and check the podcast out. Yes, this is a niche podcast, but I'm very grateful for those of you who listen regularly. I count on you for promotion, because word of mouth works, based upon the number of downloads I'm getting for each episode. So please, if you like the podcast, help me get the word out through leaving good ratings at Apple and Spotify. And leave a comment if you feel so inclined. And... You can announce new episodes as they're released through social media accounts. All of that really helps, and more and more people are finding their way to the podcast. But please don't say, I follow Riddlebarger when you do so. And a hearty thank you to those of you who helped get the word out. So let's pick back up where we left off and address the scandal of the cross of Christ and why Paul's Greco-Roman audience would be shocked by his focus upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we return to our text, we see that Paul asserts in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Recall that the Great Commission includes the command from our Lord to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the triune God, 
Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. But as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul understands that his divinely appointed mission is to preach Christ and him crucified and not to become overly involved in the day-to-day affairs of church life. The office of apostle was centered in the responsibility of preaching in an evangelistic context, that is, establishing new churches, with the day-to-day responsibility for church life assigned to the successors of the apostles, that would be the ministers of word and sacrament, the elders, and the deacons. The formation of church officers begins with our Lord's call of the twelve during Jesus' Galilean ministry, and then we see it in the establishment of the office of deacon, as recounted in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And then we find those who hold the office of elder mentioned throughout the book of Acts, and then throughout the letters of Paul, and with the specific qualifications and duties of the offices of elder and deacon, their job descriptions, as defined in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 13. Paul's emphasis upon the centrality of preaching contains loud echoes from Isaiah 40, which speaks of the Messianic age and one in which the Messiah would establish the preaching of good news. Chiampa and Rosner, citing an author named Dickinson, point out, quoting, Paul's usage of gospel terminology, especially euangelizomai, or to preach the gospel, was heavily influenced by the particular significations contained in the messenger traditions, arising from Isaiah 40, verse 9, 52 verse 7, and 61 verse 1, wherein secular messenger language had been transposed to a higher eschatological level, depicting the end-time heralds commissioned by Israel's God to announce his salvific reign. End of quote. What Paul was witnessing in his own life and ministry and in the establishment of the churches of the Gentile mission was the fulfillment of of that age foreseen by Isaiah, in which the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the Gentile world. And in light of those echoes which come to Paul from Isaiah, a book with which he was soundly familiar, Paul does not place his confidence in the power of eloquent wisdom, as one might expect in the Greco-Roman context, as if he were merely attempting to win them over on their terms. He never uttered challenges like, well, our God's greater than your philosophers. But he does make it clear that his gospel news, which is simply the account of Christ's doing and dying, confounds his audience. Because divine wisdom is only so much foolishness to those who are not given ears to hear. Paul is especially concerned that the Corinthians realize that the preaching of the cross does not center in words of eloquent wisdom literally, cleverness in speech. Calvin reminds us, quoting, Paul had no gift of eloquence, was not a born orator, but a minister of the Spirit, a servant, who with unpolished and ordinary speech might bring down the wisdom of the world. End of quote. In a place like Corinth, where people often weigh the philosopher's rhetorical skill and cleverness ahead of consideration of the message, it was easy for the Corinthians to become preoccupied with wisdom. Wisdom in Hellenistic Greek culture was a reference to a skilled rhetorician and a logician, a, a storyteller, 
who could keep an audience in rapt attention by focusing upon the application of such wisdom to the affairs of daily life. In other words, like a televangelist or someone you would see on PBS as a life coach. There's a big difference between preaching Christ crucified, a message deemed foolish, and impressing people with your wisdom. To a Greco-Roman audience, the cross of Christ is an image of shame and degradation, centering in a crucified God. It's a scandal on, a scandalous message. Christians proclaiming the cross undoubtedly heard the reaction, why would you preach something so offensive to our sensitivities? New Testament scholar Martin Hengel points out that Paul's preaching of a gospel of so-called good news, grounded in Christ crucified, was hardly a message the Greeks and Romans would have found compelling. Hengel writes, and I'm quoting, to believe that the one preexistent Son of the one true God, the mediator at creation and the redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in out-of-the-way Galilee as a member of the obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on the cross, could only be regarded as a sign of madness. End of quote. Now, as mentioned during our time in Galatians, the cross was known to all in the Greco-Roman world as a sign of utter shame and humiliation. Crucifixion was an unspeakably inhumane way to execute criminals. It brought much suffering, it was extremely painful, and it lasted, oftentimes for days. Many who came to faith during the Gentile mission had seen those crucified by the Romans along the major roads and in the town squares. This is not an obscure message. The crucified were utterly humiliated, naked, and left to rot or be eaten by birds and vermin unless and until someone took them down for a proper burial, which was not always the case because the victims were sometimes seen by their families as outcasts and were disowned. The bodies were left to be disposed of by the Romans or the animals. Hengel points out that the cross was described by several ancient writers as the infamous stake, or the criminal wood, or the terrible cross. And someone executed by crucifixion died in shame, and was regarded as an outcast from society. Invented by the barbarians, and adopted by the Romans, the Greeks considered crucifixion too barbaric for their refined sensitivities, and they abhorred the practice. Crucifixion was considered so awful, Roman citizens were usually exempt from this form of capital punishment. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, anarchists, violent criminals, or robbers. It were as though Paul was preaching the gospel of the firing squad, or the hangman's noose, or the electric chair, or the lethal injections, as the good news regarding a Savior who died in the most shameful and humiliating way imaginable. And yet, at the same time, the cross is the divinely appointed means by which God saves sinners. It is in this message and no other where God's wisdom and saving power is revealed. And since the cross was such a scandalous and offensive thing, we can see why it would have confounded any and all who heard the philosophers and the wise men of the day and found them entertaining and helpful when the gospel preached by the unimpressive Paul was anything but. 
Paul could not have proclaimed a more offensive message to his audience, but he will not preach the wisdom of pagans. Instead, he will preach Christ through which the wisdom of God now utterly confounds human wisdom. The offensive nature of the gospel message is why the temptation to compromise or avoid the message of a crucified Savior will always be so great. Preaching which softens, weakens, or spices up the cross, as one writer puts it, nullifies the power of the cross by drawing people to the preacher and not to the Savior. The content of Christian preaching is grounded in a particular message, the doing and dying of Jesus. However scandalous that message might be to a Greek or a Roman or an American, the success of the gospel does not depend upon the eloquence and rhetorical skills of the preacher. Although poor preaching, disorganized preaching, sermons filled with personal anecdotes and the moralizing message of do this, try harder, and do better should not pass for Christian preaching. From our look at the background, and the cultural conditions in Corinth, we can see how it was likely that the Greco-Roman attraction to the styles and abilities of the various preacher lie at the root of the problem in Corinth. A number of the Corinthians liked other teachers more than they liked Paul. They broke up into factions, apparently without much consideration of the content of what was being preached. And so the Corinthians ended up dividing into factions based on the creed, I follow so-and-so. And Paul says to them, this kind of behavior must stop. It is divisive. It creates factions, and it tears apart the body of Christ. And so for all of the reasons we have just recited, members of this church need to be united, as Paul tells them. All of you agree, and there should be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul's caution to the Corinthians about the ease in which destructive factions form in churches needs to be heeded today. And it's here where we see the wisdom of being a confessional church. Reformed Christians are not able to say, well, we follow John Calvin, or we follow so-and-so, because the ministers and elders of a Reformed church do not subscribe to Calvin's personal views or his theology even if most of the Reformed confessions have drawn heavily upon Calvin's work. Instead, we subscribe to a series of documents. In the case of the Reformed, it's the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, which were written and agreed upon by the churches and collectively known as the three forms of unity, not the three forms of faction and division. By confessing a common faith, spelled out in some detail in the Belgic Confession and taught regularly to the church's members in the Heidelberg Catechism, we have a built-in bulwark against factionalism. And Presbyterians do the same with the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Reformed and Presbyterian Christians confess a common faith. We affirm the same doctrines, publicly. And the Reformed have done so, with the three forms of unity, since the 1560s. In this, we see the wisdom of Presbyterian and Reformed Church government. Churches are not led by a charismatic entrepreneurial pastor, but governed by a group of elders, elected by the congregation. This, too, is a great safeguard against factionalism. That said, Christians today are as sinful as the Corinthians, and 
just as prone to factions and divisions. We follow pastors who are funny, who are charismatic, who've read the latest pop books, who've seen the latest movies, who listen to the latest music, and who can prove that they're popular by their large churches. And people will follow them even when they go astray. And they'll divide churches by insisting that their church be like the church that they see on television or the podcast they listen to. Reformed Christians must be very careful about too closely identifying with an influential or our favorite teacher or writer and falling prey to the tribalism of social media. But the same caution applies to Christians in every doctrinal tradition, not just the Reformed. As Paul instructs us, we must learn to direct our allegiance to that doctrine regarding the person and work of Christ found in those confessional documents that spell out the content of our faith, and which, we agree, summarizes biblical teaching and which we should continually test. Our primary loyalty ought to be to our own pastor, who has been assigned the task of caring for our souls. When we say we're Reformed, we are confessing, along with our brothers and sisters, a common faith defined in the three forms of unity or the Westminster Standards, which we believe summarize the Bible's teaching about Christ, His Gospel, and His Church, and which unites us, well, or at least it should. But to remain united in the sense Paul's talking about, we must keep before our eyes the glories of the Gospel, Christ and Him crucified, despite the scandal of it all. Jesus died to redeem us and then include us in his church, the new household of God. Seeking to divide that body and family which Christ died to create is a serious thing. It is because Christ died for us as individuals in the church that Paul can say to the entire congregation, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Because we're all self-centered sinners, the only way we can be united is to keep our eyes on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised for our justification, so that he might save us, not me by myself apart from his body, but save us, those for whom he has died to be members of his body, which is his church. He has come to save his people, which is why we ought to agree and be united in mind by confessing a common faith, and why we should do everything in our power to avoid division by learning to seek that which is best for his body, even if that means putting our personal issues, our preferences, or agendas aside. In Jesus Christ we are one, and we are members of his church, which is his body. And that's why we need to heed Paul's admonition and do everything in our power to be united. Well, next time we'll continue to consider Paul's emphasis on the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified as we focus upon the scandal of the cross and how God confounds those who seek wisdom elsewhere. And we'll also consider how the message of the cross can be subverted and why the temptation is so great to do so. 
Now, as we wrap up, I do the Blessed Hope podcast for one reason, to give you the background to read through and understand the letters of Paul. So your homework assignment for next time is to read through Galatians and Paul's two Thessalonian letters all the way through in a single setting. Of course, do this at different times on different days, say. And then read carefully the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. These letters are packed with important content, and you'll be glad you did so. Also, don't neglect the hearing of these letters read aloud, and there are a number of Bible apps that do so. So, talalege, take up and read, and if you can, listen to Paul's epistles that we've already covered before episode 5 of The Blessed Hope appears in your podcast feed in a couple weeks. Lord willing. Until next time, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.